Welcome to the High Performer Webinar Series provided by TMIT Global, a nonprofit medical research organization. I'm Dr. Charles Denham, Chairman and Founder of TMIT Global, and I'll be your host today. For those of you who are watching the program live, watching the video recording, or listening to the podcast, you may go to www.safetyleaders.org to download the slides and the resources. As we discuss the topics uh, uh, today, uh, we'll be digging down using a number of different frameworks. Uh, one are the five R's of safety, which are readiness, response, rescue, recovery, and resilience. And the second framework is prevention, preparedness, protection, and performance improvement. And these, uh, these are frameworks that we'll use in our discussion today as we move forward. If you had to leave this very moment and did not uh, ha have time to spend uh, with us today, we this slide really depicts what we're talking about today. We're digging down into the age 15 to 24, the leading causes of injury and harm and de preventable death, and helping families, students, families, teachers, staff, uh, have a structure and a checklist to address some of the emerging threats uh, to our students 15 to 24. We'll go more broadly than that, but we'll be addressing the safety family plan, motor vehicle accidents, drugs, alcohol, and poisoning, including vaping, drowning, choking, severe emergency and injury care, uh, bystander rescue care, infection threats, and self-harm threats that include suicide, but are not limited to that. Um, we had have run a webinar focused on these topics last month, and we recommend that you go to globalpatientsafetyforum.org or safetyleaders.org uh, to be able to view that one. And we uh, th this uh, uh, webinar today is really building on the topics we covered then. The framework that we'll cover today uh, includes uh, the four Ps, uh, prevention, preparedness, protection, performance, improvement. And really prevention is both primary and secondary. And what we mean by primary is that something just doesn't happen. Uh, secondary prevention is that if something does happen, that the harm is reduced. Preparedness is a state of readiness. Protection is what we call at the time of boom or when the, the military uh, talks about getting left of boom, but sometimes you are going to have a bad uh, a bad thing happen. And when that happens, you want to be as protected as possible. And then what can we learn from the other uh, topics uh, that and, and by, what can we learn from others who have uh, been experiencing similar uh, similar issues? So these are frameworks that we'll be using today. Uh, also, just to, te to tease where we're heading, this is a consolidated message by uh, some leading researchers in our team. Uh, and if you had to leave this very moment, what would be a rough draft of takeaways? And the first off for students is, my safety and the safety of others is non-negotiable. It's never safe for me to get behind the wheel to drive after drinking alcohol or use drugs. I have a unique brain which is continuing to develop to help me reach my dreams and goals. Early alcohol and drug use can put me on a pathway to developing an alcohol or drug use disorder, compromising my ability to flourish in life. 
And I'm reading this to you because really these are pretty profound and you're gonna see a number of short videotapes throughout our program today. Those that are attending for continuing medical education and nursing education, it'll be limited to 90 minutes. For those of you that are watching longer and on our uh, podcasts, uh, it will uh, you will have uh, the opportunity to go and uh, log on to videos if you wish, or listen to the longer session with longer videos. The third is decisions I make today are never made in isolation. What I choose to do today impacts those around me and those I love most. And our message to parents is I must remember the paradoxical window of dependence. While my student is very outwardly more independent than ever before, my parenting influence can continue to have major impact on their safety and well being, even when it may not be clearly apparent. I understand that students continue to highly value input and advice from their parents, even if they overtly, if they do not overtly admit it or not. I acknowledge that my student takes note of my behavior and actions, even when they say nothing about this to me. Here my student watches, listens, uh, the good and the not so good. I recognize that their ear and their eye gates are wide open, learning vicariously. I need to be the right role model 24-7, 365. So, why did I read that to you for those of you on the podcast and have this up on the slide? Because our audience is a little bit different audience than we've ever had before. We've expanded our programs to include higher ed. And you're really part of a learning laboratory today. We're covering a lot of content that we will be covering for uh, a, 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 a full um, unified school district of lower, upper, and uh, middle schools, as well as higher ed programs uh, that we'll be launching right after the holidays. And so a lot of the content that we'll cover is there. For those of you that are on the podcast, please go come back to safetyleaders.org uh, and go ahead to the web page, and you'll find a number of breakdown videos that are in smaller segments that are le le uh, less than a meal and more than a bite. Uh, that we'll cover today in our longer session. We're really delighted to have uh, a great group uh, today. Now, this program that uh, we're sharing with you today uh, has been free, has always been free, almost 200 sequential months. And uh, we uh, have expanded from not only teaching nurses, doctors, uh, physiotherapists, uh, risk managers, hospital administrators in a network of about 3,000 hospitals, but we've expanded now to higher education, and we've got one of our higher education leaders here today, and one of our chief security officers and chiefs of police of a major university system with us today. We're expanding from not only our caregivers, uh, but we're expanding to broad, broadly to uh, educators, and we're delighted to have everyone join us. I say this because for years, for over 12 years, we've had uh, the voice of the patient or the voice of the family uh, be expressed. And so today uh, we have Jennifer Dingman, who's been a longstanding supporter of our program, um, ha has met for many years with our team on Saturday mornings to work on major impact areas of patient safety and quality. And her contribution in no small way has saved hundreds of thousands of lives and billions of dollars, which we'll share with you at another time, but she's been involved in a number of really great initiatives. Jennifer Dingman will launch us today and, and really have us uh, set our course setting. Thank you, Dr. Denham, for your generous introduction. Today's program is very important. As we all know, our children are our greatest, greatest gift from God and a great asset to our country and our world. 
we must do everything that we can to protect them from things that could take them away from us or do harm to them. Today's program is extremely important because it will teach us a lot about what we can do to prevent deaths and harm to our children in schools. I'm looking forward to the program and I'll hand it back over to you, Dr. Denham. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jenny. And Jenny has just been a tireless uh, contributor to uh, patient safety and quality for adults and kids. Um, we, our speakers today uh, for both our short session and long session are comprised of a very talented group. Uh, Randy Steiner is with us live today, uh, who is the uh, Director of Emergency Response at the University of California, Irvine. Nanette Hausman is a longstanding champion uh, for preventing harm and injury to children and uh, influencing transparency in higher education. And you'll see a videotape uh, that she prepared for this session. Nicole Hughes is a mom, a doctor's mom who lost her four-year-old to drowning and will make a, give us an update on drowning. Sophia and Olivia McDowell are twins. They're sisters. Uh, they're both actresses. They are both influencers uh, in social media, and uh, they have been part of our, uh, our team, our student and young adult team. Dr. Gladstone McDowell is their dad, and in a recorded session in our long version, we'll be addressing some of the pain management issues and opioid overdose issues that are critical, as will Michael Dorn, who's the leading, probably had done more uh, assessments of schools and the damage in schools from active shooter events. But not only that, he's one of the leading uh, expert witnesses in vaping in the lawsuits that you're going to start to see hit the press very shortly. We're delighted to have uh, Bill Adcox, who is the chief Adcox, is really a pathfinder in uh, threat safety science. Uh, Bill is the chief security officer at MD Anderson uh, Cancer Center and is also the chief of police there and a, and a co-founder of the MedTAC program. You'll hear a recorded uh, response and, and comments from Dr. Gregory Boats, who is a, a clinical uh, adjunct professor at Stanford Medical School and a full-time professor of acute care and anesthesia at the University of Texas, MD Anderson. And you'll hear from Charlie Denham, my son, who actually uh, uh, has a bit of a story to tell in that uh, he's been saved by the Heimlich maneuver by uh, cardiac uh, screening and also uh, has, uh, has been able to leverage his knowledge of uh, water uh, and uh, prevented drowning uh, from uh, a recent experience that, that he had. And he'll be interviewing uh, Nicole Hughes regarding an update on um, water safety. Heather Foster is an RN and a wonderful contributor to our program of the last 30 months that, uh, tackling uh, the issues that pertain to uh, COVID and home family care and bystander rescue care. Perry Bechtel is, has been with us since he was a college student, an Eagle Scout. Uh, he's now uh, a uh, gra graduated as an engineer and he's uh, uh, leading uh, initiatives in Tesla, uh, an amazing job for such a young person in his mid-20s. David Grinsfelder, uh, also in his 20s, is also a contributor of, of our team, um, a graduate of uh, Berkeley. He is uh, uh, working with Amazon Media, and uh, we uh, are certain that he will continue to add great value to our programs. He was a great respondent to our uh, opioid overdose uh, film, which we'll mention today. And then David Bashk, who was our 
lead uh, middle school and lower school uh, teacher that, that helped co-found the uh, MedTech uh, bystander rescue care program. So uh, this is your group today uh, on our longer session. You'll hear more of them, the shorter session for the 90 minutes of continuing education. You may not hear everybody. Very briefly, so we can get started right away. Um, you're, this is part of our emerging threats community of practice where we identified 30 emerging threats causing injury and harm to patients, to caregivers, to the general public. Uh, they are really the areas of visible and invisible threats uh, that are keeping our leaders up at night. Uh, there are 30 of them. And the one that we're covering today and that we covered in our last session uh, is focused on uh, this issue of preventable harm uh, and injury uh, to those we serve and those who serve. Um, you can go to globalpatientsafetyforum.org and watch a video to see uh, more about that program. And also uh, we have our social media uh, 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 platform as well. Our purpose is uh, to save lives, save money, and create value in the communities we serve. Uh, we are our core values are integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship. We always try to set our course uh, with those uh, issues. None of our team have anything to disclose. There are no financial uh, support, directly, indirectly, or in an affiliated way from pharmaceutical or device companies. Um, and our global research test bed is comprised of 500 subject matter experts uh, that really originated with 1,700 hospitals. Another 2,100 hospitals were added to that. And then over the years, our subject matter expert pool has grown. Over 180 experts contributed to our coronavirus community of practice, which you see in a couple of slides here. And for those that wish to go back uh, to look at uh, some of the work that we've done and the 90-minute programs, 30 90-minute programs we produced, uh, we would be uh, honored if you do so. So our focus today is really head, heart, hands, voice. What do we want you to know? And what do we want our audiences of this training program that we're developing? You're in a learning laboratory now. We're refining our messages and our content to be able to reach students, reach their parents, and motivate their families to get the job done of preventing uh, harm and injury. The head means uh, what, what we focus on is what do we want you to know? The heart is how we, can we move you to action? Hands are taking the action and voices, what can you share with others that'll allow them to take advantage of taking those actions? And so we'll be addressing those issues and we address those in our coronavirus uh, 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 program, which you see in those that are viewing uh, our slides on slide 22, 23, and 24, which I won't go into. So we can jump right into our topic today. Um, our young, youth and young adult team that is represented uh, by some of our members today uh, uh, worked on that uh, uh, program, and they hail from a number of uh, our great universities in America. Some are still in university, some are uh, early in their university career and some are alumni of some really great organizations. And there's a, a, a great mix of uh, leaders that are really responding uh, and helping us understand uh, the younger mind, which we'll really get to explore a little bit more shortly. So before we start to show the videotapes that we plan to show you, we want you to understand 
that our focus is inside and outside threats. We want to build resilience. We want to reduce the potential risk to threats. And we want to increase our, our ability to not only avoid them, but reduce that harm. When we focused on these 30 areas, uh, many of some of them are clinical, deeply clinical in hospitals, and those of you that are caregivers will recognize them. Many of them are in our communities and the communities, uh, the public health and public safety systems. And the one today is really preventable death and severe injury. Now, when we talk about that, we've been focused on this since 2015, focusing on the eight leading causes of death for all ages where bystander rescue care can have impact. And that's on slide 31. We have uh, a number of papers that have been written that'll be posted on the website for you to be able to review. And we just want to address the fact today, we are addressing a number of these areas of failure to rescue. Cardiac arrest, minimally today. Choking and drowning, we're really gonna focus on opioid overdose and poisoning by vaping, THC, and a number of, and fentanyl we'll cover today uh, that is really building on our opioid films that we've uh, addressed. Anaphylaxis is an acute re uh, allergic reaction, major trauma, infection care. We won't cover to a great degree today, but transportation we're gonna cover heavily. And I think you'll, you'll be excited to see some of the things we learned about e-bikes and about e-skateboards and about a number of the things that can potentially uh, harm our young people. Our process is to develop communities of practice, develop courses, help develop competencies, and then certification and incentives. And this is what we're building out uh, for these uh, schools. And so I'm just going to uh, address, this is where the meat is for those of you that are on the podcast. Uh, the graphic uh, page that, uh, that the viewers can see is a graphic depiction of the causes of death by age for under one, one to four, five to 14, 15 to 24, and on up over 85. Uh, the data that is presented on this slide is, was published in 2016 from CDC data of 2013, but the 2020 data dramatically changed and what and i'll toggle back and forth between these and for those of on the podcast what dramatically changed was the leading cause of death from children one to four became drowning for, uh, formally for many years motor vehicle accidents and in our target group today uh, of the five of the uh, 15 to 24 age group opioid overdoses has really really crept up uh, we have uh, choking is a major issue as well as uh, drowning uh, but the really big change was those in our workforce years from those in our mid-20s that are responding today right through to 65 leading cause of death opioid overdose uh, uh, and um, so that's really really critical uh, now when we look at the 15 to 24 age group they're, the, the, main, the main reason for the death and injury are bad decisions. And as we shared in a, uh, our webinar last, uh, last month from the famous serper Sean, uh, Sean Thompson, um, think twice. His message to young people, he lost his son from the, the choking game or what's now called the blackout game on TikTok and a pr totally preventable death. 
and you're going to you're going to learn about the the adolescent and teenage and young uh, young adult brain today we've got some pretty good videos that really kind of show that and the issue is is that much has to do with decisions so sean uh, gave us that message we recommend that you go back to uh, our webinar um, uh, in um, uh, our webinar uh, last month we over the last three years have refined a program called the family lifeguard program and we've revisited this and so david bashk is with us today and charlie denham is actually in school developed a holiday huddle checklist that evolved over the last th three years to help people through the COVID crisis. And it was a checklist to know what to do before an event, during an event, and after an event. Using a checklist really built on a concept from Dr. Boats called the, called the care huddle, which is before you have an event, where are the AEDs? Do you know CPR? Do you know the evacuation routes? And we then modified that approach and added uh, elements to this checklist regarding uh, aerosols. So the big payoff really for today's discussion is we're going to dig deeply into why we need to focus on motor vehicle accidents in this young age group, 16 to 24, drugs, alcohol, and poisoning, uh, the edible THC, uh, the counterfeit fentanyl pills, why drowning is such a big deal after COVID, nobody's been getting swimming lessons, choking, still, still very, very common, and why severe emergency and injury can be prevented by just some basic bystander rescue uh, care skills. And finally, you know, one of the sad things is suicide. With the impact of social media, we've seen an enormous jump in suicides, especially in adolescent girls. The other thing that we wanted, or the next thing we wanted to really recognize is if we can get our students in the, um, in the school group that we're working with this spring and the university that we'll be working with, and we can get them to, it, to learn how to prevent harm and injury to themselves, they could expand to their siblings. Look at that. And for those on the podcast, uh, uh, that the drowning is an enormous problem in the one to four age group, as well as uh, motor vehicle accidents and opioid overdose in the parents of those kids that are 15 to 24. If they expanded even further, falls are a major cause of unanticipated death in our elderly. So these are areas where our young people could actually focus, uh, which is, is really, really a pertinent uh, and important issue. So enough about me talking. Now I'm gonna be showing you a number of videotapes and then we'll get our reactors to kind of respond. Um, what we're gonna show is um, you know, so what is it about the teenage brain that uh, that uh, that makes us uh, um, uh, more susceptible to making mistakes and uh, and that kind of thing? And so I'll uh, be showing you uh, 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 a video uh, here, and then we're going to dig into motor vehicle accidents. Why do the adolescent? Why do the adolescents and young adults have more car accidents than anybody else? New research says risky behavior among teenagers begins around the age of 19. The new study of more than 5,000 teenagers and young adults from 11 countries confirms adolescent brains are all prone to risk taking. But acting on it varies. Psychologist Lisa Damore takes an in-depth look at that study in her New York Times online article, Teenagers Do Dumb Things, But There Are Ways to Limit Recklessness. Lisa Damore is also a CBS News contributor. Lisa, welcome back.
Thank you. I've got three of these. I've had three of these teenage <laughs> beings. That do dumb things? That do dumb things. <laughs> and I've had this conversation many times. It, I mean, what's interesting, what I notice here is you, you, you talk about the thrill-seeking impulse reaches its peak at 19. Yes. But the sort of the breaks on that system don't reach their adult level till... Closer to 23 or 24. So we got four crises. So there's a years. real mismatch. There's a real mismatch between when sensation-seeking peaks and when the controls are fully on. But that, that. risk-taking is totally normal. It is normal. It's an expectable part of adolescence. We expect teenagers to seek independence and to sort of reach out into the outside world. Mm -hmm. But it also means that parents are nervous. Yeah, and so don't just think easy. they're doing dumb things. It is wired in their brain. Yes. What That's we what do I think see is, interesting. Yeah. is that um, the teenage brain is built so that they really want to seek sensation. Mm -hmm. But it happened, it's different how it happens all around the world. But in Indonesia, I thought this was very interesting, only 2% of the kids there engage in risk-taking behavior. Have, have tried drinking in the last 30 days. Yeah. That was the finding. And so what's <laughs> important about this new research is that it shows that teenagers around the world all have these gawky brains yeah. where their impulses can get ahead of their controls. But teenagers around the world don't take risks at the same level. So context matters. And that's important for parents to understand. And your parenting matters, too. Absolutely. That there are things parents can do to help keep teenagers safe. What do we do? Yeah. So what do we do? So we reinforce laws that we know help keep, keep teenagers safe, like right. driving curfew laws. We supervise them, right? Because for something to go wrong, temptation and opportunity have to come together. Yeah. Um, we plan with them in advance for tricky situations they might get in. Like? Like if they show up at a party and suddenly everyone's drinking and they weren't expecting that. We don't want teenagers to be trying to figure out how to handle those situations on the fly. Mm -hmm. So we want to have an advanced plan with them. One of the things that we see is that teenage reasoning, reasoning is very different in different contexts. What they can say at home in the cold light of day with you yeah. isn't always what happens in the heat of the night. Yes. You say agree on an emoji. Yes. So my favorite new thing is that some teenagers will come to an agreement about a secret emoji code. Right. That they'll say to their parent, if I send you the hamburger emoji, that yeah. means come get me and make it look like it was your idea. <laughs> yeah. That's a great Yeah. So if their friends right. see it, they know that they're not calling for help. All exactly. Right. Lisa Demore, the goal, good advice. Smart. Thank you very much. If you're interested in how people get to be the way they are, um, adolescence is such an important time. We really become the person that we're going to be probably for the rest of our lives. Well, I'm a developmental psychologist. I specialize in adolescence. Um, so I teach and do research on the second decade of the lifespan. Um, and my research right now focuses on how adolescents make decisions especially in terms of how they make decisions about risk-taking. The systems of the brain that respond to reward become very easily aroused. So things that feel good feel even better. Um, and for that reason, people are very attracted to go after rewarding experiences, even if they might be a little bit dangerous. So that kind of impels kids toward risky behaviors. A lot of my interest in adolescent risk-taking and decision-making grew out of a project I was involved in that, it, it, that looked at juvenile justice policy and practice. And during the last decade, the U.S. Supreme Court has considered three landmark cases involving juvenile crime, 
um, probably the most important of which was um, a, a case involving the constitutionality of the juvenile death penalty. We were really delighted to see that, that our work was cited by the court um, in its opinions that banned the juvenile death penalty and that placed limits on the use of life without parole um, as a sentence for juveniles. Adolescents are different from adults in ways that make them less responsible for their behavior. They're more impulsive, they're more short-sighted, they're more easily influenced by their peers. So we developed a, a video driving game that we call Stoplight, where you're trying to get someplace in a hurry, you approach an intersection, the light turns yellow, and you make a decision about whether you're gonna to try to run it or not. So we can take this task into the MRI and have people play this game while we're capturing brain images. Um, and what we have found is first, adolescents take many more risks when they're doing this task in front of their friends than when they're doing it by themselves. I'm good, man. Good luck in there. We're going to be watching you. But second, when adolescents are doing the driving game, playing stoplight, with their friends watching, parts of their brain that get excited by the prospect of a reward are lighting up. They're being activated. And we have shown that the extent to which the brain lights up during this task predicts how much risk-taking you engage in. So if we could get kids to stop doing things that put themselves um, in jeopardy, we could really improve the health of American young people. So that's a bit of a teaser regarding the, uh, the adolescent brain. We're gonna get, really get into the distractions and how distractions really work uh, and how that impact can really uh, be there. Now, we're going to be listening, when we talk about head, heart, hands, voice, we talk about what we want you to know. We're gonna learn a lot about the adolescent brain. We're gonna learn a lot about the injuries that are occurring. And again, this is the beginning of our journey to create a number of hours of core content for university students and for high school and middle school students. And so you're at the beginning of the beginning. So bear with us that uh, some of the content may not be in the order that you may wish. Uh, we want to get everything through for you for the 90 minutes uh, of a continuing medical and continuing nursing education. We have the luxury of many more hours to deliver our content. But before we go any further, we're, we will be hearing a story from a mom who lost her son, uh, who is battling getting transparency of deaths and injury into our system. And there are natural Darwinian um, uh, 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 opponents of wanting to have that transparency. And now in this very recent, over the last 15 years, the development of the internet, um, the truth is really hard to, to, to identify. Uh, we are dealing with something that we call the narrative. And I'll get to that in just a minute. But what I want to do is just uh, share with you, uh, I'm a cancer doctor. I subspecialized in lung cancer. We battled the tobacco industry and major forces to convince people that tobacco actually would kill, that, it, that nicotine was addictive. And, uh, and I, I had to treat many people that died of cancer. My father died of cancer at 59 years of age, a fighter pilot originally in World War II who was given cigarettes. We will always have some opponents of doing the right thing because somebody's ox may get gored. There may be some financial issues that just will not uh, allow uh, everybody to, to, to get on board. So let's just talk about the concept of disinformation, misinformation, and malinformation. And we're gonna show a short videotape for you 
uh, uh, here uh, uh, with a commentary. The internet has been a huge blessing. Information is now instant, searchable, and permanent. However, inaccurate information can have a terrible impact on our public safety and our public health systems. Information disorder has been popularized by the nonprofit First Draft that originally joined the Shorenstein Center at Harvard and subsequently moved to Brown University. The concept described in an excellent article published by the Harvard University Kennedy Center addresses misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation that can be differentiated by whether the information is false and whether there is an intent to harm. If you were to dive into the dark web, you'd find a lot of information you couldn't find with, say, just a simple Google search. And a lot of what's down there is simply false information. In recent years, that false information has made its way to mainstream platforms. Now, a simple Google search will show you ideas, thoughts, and movements previously hidden away from the dark corners of the Internet. To protect yourself against what's false and harmful, you need to understand how that information comes to exist in the first place and how it comes across your social media feeds. Now, there are three different types of content as identified by First Draft. That is an organization fighting to bring you truth on what you read and watch. Disinformation, misinformation, and malinformation. Collectively, these three groups are known as information disorder. Let's start with the first. Disinformation is intentionally false. It's designed to cause harm. That's often backed by motivations to make money, to have political influence, or cause trouble just for the sake of it. The second, misinformation. That's also false content, but the person sharing it doesn't realize it's false or misleading. This is driven by socio-psychological factors. These people want to feel connected to their tribe, whether that's the same political party, activists for climate change, or those that belong to a certain religion, race, or ethnic group. Finally, malinformation. This is genuine information shared with the intent to cause harm. An example is when Russian hackers hacked the Democratic National Committee and Hillary Clinton's campaigns and emails. They leak certain details just to damage reputations. So before you hit or share or retweet, stop and ask yourself how that information came to exist and whether it's at all credible. So why are we sharing this with you? And the answer is uh, that our public safety system, which is comprised of our law enforcement represented by Chief Adcox, who's also a academic leader at one of our great institutions teaching, helping us understand threat safety science. But the public health, the public safety system comprised of law enforcement, fire, police, and our emergency departments has really taken a major hit from COVID, but also from what's been out in the press, defunding the police, the, the, the negative things that have been said about the frontline first responders who, and now we've got a huge vacancies across the country. This has impacted on our response time for bystander rescue care. And this is why families, teachers, students, staff need to recognize that the, the, the rapidity with which somebody comes to rescue you, the ability to rescue you, the skill to rescue you has gone down dramatically and it, only our families really can respond there. Over on the other end of the continuum, uh, our CDC has taken an amazing hit with all of the politicization and polarization that's occurred in the press. Um, and, and it has really destroyed our public health 
education system. So what we're trying to do with this program, and we're apolitical on this, is we need to have you understand we've got to step up because our students and our families are less safe than they were, still probably more safe than many countries, but we really need to focus on that. And the other thing is this use of the narrative to combat uh, um, uh, issue, to fight the kind of the dirty warfare using their own set of facts to be able to uh, reduce potential risk. Uh, the major company that owns the major tobacco companies owns 35% of Juul, the company that generates the vaping devices, Major lawsuits are coming out because of the enormous damage to our children from vaping, and uh, and it's a war of public opinion. And so, when when our 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 uh, mom shares her story of her loss of her son and her goal to champion having transparency and in injuries and harm and death, uh, there are natural opponents, and we, we aren't dealing with facts anymore. We're really de dealing with the narrative and the public opinion. So what is shaping public opinion? And then we'll go back to, we'll go to our, uh, go to our audience after we listen to Nanette Houseman's video. But I, I want you to, to uh, just have a chance to watch three trailers. Uh, these three trailers uh, address uh, three films, documentaries that really help us understand how the narrative can be bent uh, for certain purposes. And it turns out to be the same people are the consultants that are helping shape these narratives in public health. Communication is about sales. Keep it simple. People will fill in the blank with their own, I hate to say biases, but with their own perspective in many cases. The tobacco companies knew nicotine was an addictive drug, yet they told Congress, I believe nicotine is not addictive. You see the same small group of people that the tobacco industry used working on all kinds of other issues. Dioxins, pesticides, chemicals in general, I mean, there's no evidence that these are harming us. Scientists would explain the science. Against the scientists, they will have a so-called expert. Seven-week-old baby was in a crib. I literally heard a gasp when he told the story about this baby. Either one of you paid to testify for your time here in opposition to the bill. Fire safety. Citizens for Fire Safety, the three largest makers of flame retardants in the world. Some of these so-called experts turn out to be very, very good at it. I'm not a scientist, although I do play one on TV occasionally. Uh, okay, hell, more than occasionally. <laughs> it creates a whole new cast of characters, these people who become well-known for casting doubt on global warming. Catastrophic global warming is a hoax. There's no scientific consensus. You go up against a scientist, most of them are very hard to understand and very boring. It's all about preventing you from looking where the action really is, which is in the science. The Earth is getting warmer, no question about it. Accomplishments such a small group of people have had an enormous impact on public opinion. We're the negative force. We're just trying to stop stuff. My name is Victor DiNovo. I'm a scientist. The story I'm about to tell you begins 29 years ago. I get a phone call from a guy named Bill Dunn. He said, I have a job for you. So I work with Philip Morris and we make cigarettes. We got a problem. 138,000 people will have heart attacks and brain strokes every year caused by nicotine. 
You guys make a product that you know kills people? He said, no, 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 we don't kill anybody. Nicotine does, but we have a program. Philip Morris recognized that it was in their interest to find products that killed less people. Dead people don't buy cigarettes. To a scientist, that's a dream. You get to do a job that actually might make a difference. I proposed a design to the company, a cigarette that had tobacco but no nicotine. Our drug would be in there but no heart disease, but there was a catch. They were also doing research to make more addictive products. When the two worlds collided, less harmful or more addictive, they chose more addictive. When you go to work for Philip Morris, you sign a secrecy agreement. For the rest of your life, you're not allowed to divulge what you did there. Imagine 50 years of the secrets of an industry that had kept secrets better than any industry. If I resisted these guys, they could ruin my career. But if I didn't resist them, what's my career worth? Victor DeNoble was the first whistleblower. It was nothing like we'd ever seen. It's a huge story. Huge, huge, huge. It changed the debate on tobacco, and it opened the floodgates of attacks on the tobacco industry. They came to our houses, set up surveillance, took photographs of me in front of my front lawn, playing with my kids. They both unbuttoned their jackets. I could see a holster. My heart just stopped. They weren't interested in science. They were interested in threatening me. There were TV, media people everywhere. There was no turning back. But it was not going to stop the tidal wave that was about to hit the tobacco industry. When you go to Google and type in climate change is, you're going to see different results depending on where you live and the particular things that Google knows about your interests. That's not by accident, that's a design technique. What I want people to know is that everything they're doing online is being watched, is being tracked. Every single action you take is carefully monitored and recorded. A lot of people think Google's just a search box and Facebook's just a place to see what my friends are doing. What they don't realize is there's entire teams of engineers whose job is to use your psychology against you. I was the co-inventor of the Facebook like button. I was the president of Pinterest. Google. Twitter. Instagram. There were meaningful changes happening around the world because of these platforms. I think we were naive about the flip side of that coin. We get rewarded by parts, likes, thumbs up, and we conflate that with value and we conflate it with truth. A whole generation is more anxious, more depressed. I always felt like fundamentally it was a force for good. I don't know if I feel that way anymore. Facebook discovered that they were able to affect real-world behavior and emotions without ever triggering the user's awareness. They are completely Clueless. Fake news spreads six times faster than true news. We're being bombarded with rumors. If everyone's entitled to their own facts, there's really no need for people to come together. In fact, there's really no need for people to interact. We have less control over who we are and what we really believe. If you want to control the population of your country, there has never been a tool as effective as Facebook. We built these things and we have a responsibility to change it. The intention could be, how do we make the world better? 
If technology creates mass chaos, loneliness, more polarization, more election hacking, more inability to focus on the real issues, we're toast. This is checkmate on humanity. So it's critically important that we understand what's actually going on in terms of the narrative. And I can tell you in my own community here, um, a high school that's about two miles from me, there's only one bathroom that the kids can go to that doesn't have everybody vaping. Uh, and one of the, the presidents of one of the local high schools has told me he thinks that probably 20 to 30% of the kids are vaping. As the, as the battle regarding opioids and vaping uh, and uh, these lawsuits start to hit the press, you're going to see that there will be uh, a lot of public uh, information uh, out there and the battles will be in the court of public opinion. So it's critical as we, as we think about uh, the, the next story, and we're going to stop just for a moment. We're about ready to really dig into the causes of harm and death of these kids. But the heart is so critical, and we've asked uh, Nanette Hausman to tell the story and let us understand what it's like to lose uh, your child, uh, you lose a child uh, when uh, it's a preventable cause of death. And it's important because as we talk with and as we build out our, our content, and you're part of our learning laboratory, we will be using the patient stories, and you'll hear more of them, uh, of those who've been harmed by many of these preventable uh, accidents and preventable substances and preventable initiatives. But I think it's important for us to just kind of uh, uh, stop for a moment and just remember what it's like uh, to um, to experience this. And so we've asked uh, Nanette Hausman, who's a real champion uh, uh, for good, for uh, transparency in our higher education and prevention of harm. Uh, and she's working with a coalition of other moms. But we asked her to kind of share the story of what it's like to lose a child. So uh, because we'll be using these stories as we try to motivate families. So indulge us and allow us to have her tell her story. It all started on a typical Tuesday evening in early September of 2018. My youngest, Corey, had started college just a few weeks earlier at the University of Colorado Boulder. When our caller ID showed Boulder Community Health, we didn't immediately panic or put the pieces together. The doctor informed us that Corey had a skateboard accident on campus, had suffered a head trauma, but was in stable condition. Seven hours later and 2,000 miles away, as we were scrambling to get on the next flight to Denver, we were told that Corey was gone. What's it like to have your child, brother, or close friend with you one day and gone the next? For my family, this loss is devastating, life-altering, and crushing. Our funny, smiling, happy-go-lucky youngest died after falling while traveling alone on a campus sidewalk in broad daylight. We were completely blindsided and in shock. 
My son Lucas rushed home from New York City, went into Corey's room and sat on his bed for the entire night, totally numb. We all tried to make sense of the situation. How could this have happened to our Corey and to us? We met Casey in Boulder to be together and to make arrangements and decisions we were completely unprepared for. We stayed in the mountains for 10 days, just looking at each other, crying and being angry. This time allowed us to catch our breath and prioritize each other before stepping back into our new sad reality with expectations, piles of medical bills and a haunting to-do list. In order to process what had happened, we needed answers as we had zero control over any aspect of the situation. The information we received from the medical staff was delayed, inconsistent, and only added to our difficult situation. I can't explain the impact of losing Corey has had on me. It's impossible. I'm in some level of denial, and without a doubt, this is a coping mechanism. I'm terrified to fully realize that Corey died so suddenly and senselessly, or I'll completely fall apart. And that is something I can't do. I have a new reality to shape with our family. And this is a challenge because my boys and Joel were so very close. In fact, when Corey first started talking, he always wanted to know where the brothers were. I don't think he realized that Casey and Lucas were two separate people for quite some time. Their closeness is one of my biggest points of pride as a mom. When they were home, they would all go out or all stay in. And despite the six year age gap, they were inseparable. Their friend groups have merged over time, which is also somewhat unique. His death impacted others outside the family, some significantly. Multiple friends went with Corey to Boulder but after his death, they either took leaves or transferred to different colleges. This includes Corey's roommate, Chris, a friend since preschool. New friends and dorm mates sought counseling after they heard Corey was gone. They had known him for just 15 days. In Corey's honor, I have become driven to prevent other families from experiencing the type of tragedy mine has. My daily focus is advocating for change in how we define college safety. The college911.net and the College Safety Coalition are initiatives aimed to stop senseless and preventable injuries and deaths in college communities. This work keeps Corey's spirit alive well beyond his 18 years of physical life. In working with other families who have suddenly lost children, regardless of the circumstances, I've learned that you never really get over it. If you're lucky, you wipe the tears when they come and learn to put one foot in front of the other and move forward. I'm finishing off with a video that we found on Corey's phone after he died. We don't think it has been shared and believe it is a surprise Father's Day gift. Joel had been encouraging him to pick up the guitar for years. As you can see, Corey had fully blossomed and was beaming with hope before he experienced a preventable death at his college.
we're so grateful for the great work that uh, that um, Nanette is undertaking and has really taught us so much about what we could do to help prevent the harm to our, our kids that are off to college. Uh, oddly enough, when she called the university to collect his things, she found out there were two other deaths just in that first three weeks of uh, his freshman year. And this is known as the red zone, the, for those first years in, in, uh, in university and college uh, uh, are those, uh, uh, these things are happening. So let's shift gears. And before we have our, uh, our, our group respond, um, we're going to show um, uh, a video uh, and a couple of videos regarding the uh, adolescent teenage brain and motor vehicle accidents and why some of these things are going on. And then we'll go to our reactors. Think you know all about distracted driving. Think again. Your eyes are on the road, your hands on the wheel, but your brain isn't geared on driving. So when you're looking at something straight in front of you, you should be able to see it, but you don't. It's just like having tunnel vision behind the wheel. It's because you are cognitively distracted. AAA and the AAA Foundation for Traffic Safety 
partnered with mental distraction expert Dr. David Strayer and his team at the University of Utah to undertake a landmark research project that challenges the current mindset about distracted driving. Building upon previous visual and manual distraction research and five decades of aviation psychology looking at pilot distraction, this groundbreaking study focuses on mental distractions, also known as cognitive distraction. Using brain-based metrics, driving simulators, and a first-of-its-kind instrumented vehicle, participants were studied as they engaged in various non-driving behaviors, from listening to the radio or talking on a mobile phone to using voice-activated dashboard apps. With these findings, researchers developed a ranking order for distraction similar to the five-category rating system used for hurricanes. The study offers evidence that you're not necessarily safer just because your eyes are on the road and your hands on the wheel if your brain isn't geared on driving. When you're driving down the road, the world is full of all of this visual information, and we have this illusion that we're attending to everything. People drive you know, thousands of miles every day. We're behind the wheel for hours. And a lot of times we try and uh, alleviate boredom by trying to do all these other kinds of activities. As a consequence of that, we don't actually give driving due diligence in terms of what our responsibilities are to operate a very heavy, expensive piece of equipment without causing harm. Yeah, I consider myself a good driver. I mean, I don't know if other people do, but I do. Yes, I would consider myself a good driver. Have the music up. I'd be like, oh yeah, I got this, guys. I know the roads. I know where I'm at. That's fine. People don't even know if they're distracted or not. Most people can't be above average drivers. It's just statistically impossible. So there's this notion that if our eyes are on the road and our hands are on the wheel, then we're safe drivers. So we wanted to kind of challenge that notion and begin to explore that notion. The most significant thing about this research is that it focuses specifically on cognitive distraction, which is often ignored. It's the types of attention diversions that are all in your head. You're looking at it, you're looking straight ahead. You should be able to see it, but you're not. Sometimes I know that I get caught off guard. My last speeding ticket was in school zone. I'm too close to the car in front of me or I didn't see the red light coming. So I've gotten in a couple of fender benders and I like had a couple of friends in the car. It's kind of hard to say. I guess we're all kind of distracted. The research team used a multitude of measures to unlock the secret to what really happens inside the brain of a driver who is cognitively distracted. Okay, so this is our participant, Josh. He's gonna be getting an EEG cap on him today. Using a special EEG configured skull cap with electrodes, the participant's brain activity was analyzed to determine mental focus levels. And then go ahead and with your eyes, I want you to look left and right. These are your eye channels, and we can tell when you start to not scan anymore as you're driving and as you become more distracted. Cameras mounted inside the vehicle were used to test the ability to see hazards in the driving environment by tracking eye and head movement. So right now I'm getting that light task up and started here. This light I'm task, a state-of-the-art detection response task, or DRT, was utilized to record reaction time. Drivers were to ignore the red light and then trigger a switch when presented with the green light. And a horrible scene but what we're doing in this study that's unique is we're taking eight different tasks and we're measuring driver behavior, driver performance while people are doing these very different tasks in a way that hasn't been done before. Plus four equals eight. 
when we're doing the studies, if the green light comes on and people don't respond to it because they haven't seen it, that's a potential hazard. It's really uh, kind of a surrogate for the types of uh, visual information that people are missing all the time in the driving environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like last night I was at the parking lot. Just to let you know you did miss a couple of the lights, just even sitting here driving, only listening to an audiobook. When people engage in more and more difficult tasks, that they tend to miss more and more of those lights. It could easily be a pedestrian, it could be another car, um, and so those misses are extremely problematic. Rather than trying to anticipate the environment, they may not uh, scan for the threat of a pedestrian in a crosswalk, but respond when that pedestrian does appear, if they do indeed see that pedestrian. And we thought, well, let's just try and develop a, a system that's very intuitive and under, uh, to understand about how severe something is. People are familiar with a Category 5 hurricane. They know that's a real uh, high level of destructive force. Likewise, a Category 5 level of distraction is something that really has a lot of hazards. Times 4 minus 5 equals 18. Yes. Oh, there's a stop sign. Sorry, guys. Okay. Wait for them to go. Okay, okay so we're here on the screen. As you can see, her horizontal eye movement's here. And when she's driving straight, she's not scanning as much yeah, as when well, she's doing single-task driving. Wait. This is a great picture. Reply to this email to comment. Reply. Thanks, Tyler. It was so much fun. We'll definitely have to do it again. Send. Next message. We found that interacting with the speech-to-text system, delayed response time, to uh, the DRT device more than any of the other conditions. I think it suggests that trying to understand cognitive distraction really does require kind of a scientific effort and that just using intuitions isn't necessarily sufficient. Well, after this experience, my thoughts on being preoccupied and distracted while driving have completely skyrocketed. Yeah, I kind of wish I didn't know about the brain activity with that just because I thought I was a good driver. And then getting in that car and actually realizing how much I wasn't paying attention when I was trying that was a little bit scary. There's not really a difference and I'm making that many mistakes when I think that I'm competent in what I'm doing. Then I'm assuming most people will do the same thing. So it's got to be a dangerous situation. To the extent that you think distracted driving is a problem now, we expect that it's likely to get much worse with the kinds of things that are coming down the road, so to speak. The science will also help guide some public policy so that we don't design technology that goes into cars that would be unsafe to use. I'm hopeful that as this dialogue progresses, we start to actually say that, you know what, we need to reel in some of these behaviors that are just unsafe and not become uh, totally driven by whatever device is ringing or shining or, or, or kind of trying to compete with attention. Some combination of uh, legislation, education, and personal responsibility is really what's necessary in order to really get people to have a, a safe uh, driving culture. So what we'd like to do is uh, is ask uh, Chief uh, Adcox uh, to respond to what kind of what you've seen there. We'll go to David uh, 
uh, after that and Randy after that. Uh, and I'll let you know, David, uh, for the for the, the, the youth, we've got uh, e-skateboard accidents and e-bike accidents we're going to get to here in a couple minutes. And so uh, we know that the, the distractions driving are major and we know that we are seeing a lot of car accidents in the C younger age group. But we want to uh, uh, first go to Chief Adcox. Uh, what would you like to, to share with us, uh, Chief? Well, thank you very much, Dr. Denham, and welcome everyone and welcome panelists. Um, I think it, I think the evidence is very clear that that with the current state of our 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 electronics and and how we are, are are behaving behind the wheel of vehicles that that we are increasing the chances for for an accident or a catastrophic event. Um, I do think that as as we get further down the road and, and get a better handle on, on the pandemic as it becomes endemic. And as we get more, more people driving back out and driving, uh, they haven't been driving as much in a while. There's all these distractions that we, we may be looking at a pretty serious uh, uh, effect. Uh, we do know that traffic deaths have gone up during, during our, uh, the COVID time. So we just, we just have to be cognizant of that. The other thing I think what this is all showing us is that, you know, we this tremendous amount of of, of misinformation, different disinformation and malinformation is something that that is is very very detrimental, very impacting on on our particularly on our younger adults, and um, so we as we as uh, adults have to be really careful how we are uh, communicating and working with and setting up those appropriate boundaries. Uh, with the young adults so that it has a long-term effect it doesn't it doesn't go in one ear and out the other and i think there's a lot of evidence to show that speaking candidly with with our family members and, and talking about not just that you shouldn't do something but really talk about you know the, the consequences of certain actions and behaviors and and, and and explaining it as far as their life goals and how that would be impactful uh, is very helpful, but but we have a long ways to go, and we certainly appreciate you bringing these things uh, to the forefront, Dr. Denham. Well, thanks, Bill, and, and you know you're at a major cancer center at, uh, that treats lung cancer. I'm uh, I was a subspecialist in lung cancer. We have a heck of a fight on our hands when we come to the substances, which we're going to come to in just a minute. But since motor vehicle accidents were the most common. Uh, uh, David, your your thoughts in terms of the distractions, and I'll let you know what Perry shared with us, which we've recorded. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 such a timely issue. I just I see it every day with people I'm in the car with. You know, I experience those same temptations, and I think it's difficult with with a lot of younger people my age and below. There's shortening attention spans, right? All this short form media that kids are getting through TikTok or through Instagram makes it a lot harder for them to just sit. And do something as simple as driving. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the solutions are at this exact moment, but I do know that there's a need to break that stranglehold that this technology has over people's attention spans. So, I'm hoping that we're moving in the right direction, but um, I, don't, I don't know exactly what to say. Right. Uh, really relish your, your your thoughts when we cover the substance issues as well here shortly. So, Perry, you are uh, not only an engineer. Uh, working for Tesla, but you're also a pilot uh, and very uh, familiar with the, a lot of the physics and the biomedical engineering issues that are addressed when we talk about uh, motor vehicle accidents and severe trauma. React to what you saw regarding the distractions with the backdrop that the younger brain is not very risk averse 
and the distractions and then the speed and the, the risk that we see with the electric skateboards and e-bikes. Sure. So especially with distracted driving, I think it's something that everyone has experienced at some point in their life. And I think that the video is just really great to show because I think watching those clips, um, everyone I'm sure has been to the point where you've been those people. You've been on your phone, you've been using the radio. And I think those clips are a really good reminder of what one, what can happen as well as the consequences, especially with younger drivers and people new to driving. Um, I don't know if they've all had close calls. I think most experienced drivers have had close calls, whether it's distracted driving or another driver doing something out of the ordinary. But I really think that without that, they just don't clearly understand the consequences until they've been there. So until you've had someone truly slam your brakes, uh, maybe you had someone swerve into your lane, something that doesn't happen in everyday driving, until you see that firsthand, it's really hard to even get an idea of how it can happen. And so with younger drivers, with newer drivers, with kind of the teenagers that are more inclined to take risks, I think it's really important that you do try to set up a protocol and just really be strict to yourself about not being distracted. Whether that's putting your phone in the back seat, whether you have the willpower not to touch it, um, I think it's really important to set up some sort of mechanism to help ensure that you're not getting distracted while driving because it's so easy to do. It seems so harmless until it's not. Perfect. Loved it. And then maybe we can do a part where we touch on um, some of the electric, um, the, some the, of the some e bikes and skateboards, yeah, that kind of thing. Okay. Uh, so Perry, react to the videos that you've seen regarding the electric skateboards and the e bikes and the the potential risk of those uh, those modes of transportation. Absolutely. So coming from a University of Florida, in which not quite e-bikes, but kind of the moped scooters and um, other kind of individual transportation was really common. It is so scary um, to see what kind of accidents can happen. There was deaths almost every year on our campus from those vehicles. And I think because they're electric, because they don't make noise, people kind of assume that they're safer, especially with kind of the skateboards, the e-bikes. But in reality, it's a at the end of the day, it's a motorcycle. It's, it might not have quite the same speed as like a Harley or a like a racing bike, but you're in the same situation. Um, like physics never lies. And with F equals MA, you're a very small mass and a car that's a much larger mass, even not at a high speed can reduce, can produce a tremendous amount of force and cause really, really serious accidents. So when you're riding those vehicles, even if you're a safe driver, you really have to be aware of your surroundings. Um, always wear your helmet and just make sure that you're really trying to stay safe. Uh, uh, Randy, anything you want to add before we uh, shift gears on our topics? I'm going to figure out the Zoom thing one of these days. Um, no, thanks for having me. And good to see everybody on the panel, Chuck. Um, but uh, I, the one thing I can add is just as a, as a parent, the, one of the most terrifying events of my parental life happened just two days ago when I handed my son his first driver's license that we had just gotten in the mail. And uh, I was the one who had taught him to drive. So I've seen the uh, the level of distraction. He's gotten much better over time. And I think he's going to be a safe driver. But it is a it is a very scary thing. You know, like David said, coming out of uh, particularly coming out of this COVID era where we were all kind of forced in to this digital environment and to, you know, really condition ourselves to get you know this short attention kind of information level that we've been we've been exposed to 
you know, now coming out of it, as Chief Adcock said, you know, coming into, uh, you know, when, when my son first started to drive, when we first started learning, it was very few cars on the road because we were kind of in the middle of COVID. Now that's, that's changed. So it is a, you know, a, a, a very pointed topic. I think that driving accidents are going to continue to be, you know, very high on the list of, of preventable type accidents with, with, you know, younger people, um, you know, they always have been, and it's, I don't think that's going to change very much, but th these types of studies, it's encouraging that people are looking at this and trying to figure out, you know, how to, how to, how to do it. Well, uh, thank you very much. And, you know, as we look at UCI and what we can do to help you there with UCI, uh, uh, we've got some new technologies on the, uh, in the game. And, uh, and, and, and that is uh, this, uh, this issue of the electronic uh, skateboards, uh, the e-bikes uh, and that kind of thing. And we're just gonna share a couple of quick uh, uh, pieces here and I'll probably interrupt them so they don't go too long. So for those on our podcast, we've just w watched uh, a number of uh, skateboard accidents and the combination of speed, uh, inexperience, and, and just plain physics is just an amazing uh, issue. Uh, for our extended view, you all will be able to hear and see the story of uh, Orange County here and the dramatic rise in e-bike accidents uh, and it's critical to kind of recognize that uh, that these are motorcycles and uh, that uh, uh, that major head injuries, back injuries, neck injuries are very, very common. And so just to add to that, this is uh, we'll be showing a short clip of uh, e-bike crashes that are being studied in terms of the injuries that are generated from them.
So in deference to our podcast uh, audience today, uh, we won't go further, but uh, we'll have our audience, uh, our, uh, our panel kind of react to, uh, uh, to seeing those after we show uh, just the final clip on these major injuries and motor vehicle accidents. We've been asked uh, by our leadership team to add concussions. And uh, Bill, you know that we've added concussions and the issue of concussions to our MedTech, eight leading causes of death, including um, uh, major trauma. So our major trauma includes uh, stop the bleed issues with major, major bleeding, but also uh, this issue of, uh, of concussions. And we'll just show a short clip regarding that, and then, uh, uh, and then we'll move to substances. Concussions have been a major focus area in American football for years. However, even in 2022, we have a lot more to learn about traumatic head injury, whether in sports, motor vehicle accidents, or falls. This morning, the NFL and Players Union agreeing to tighten the rules, dictating when a player must come out of the game after taking a hit to the head. On Sunday, Dolphins backup quarterback Teddy Bridgewater tackled on his very first snap of the game. The team pulling him out per the new concussion guidelines. Those guidelines in place because of this hit to Dolphins starting quarterback Tua Tugabailoa less than two weeks ago. Sacked, his head hitting the ground. His fingers spread wide and frozen in front of his face. That's a neurological response to head trauma. Just four days earlier, taking this hit. Oh, he's woozy. Stumbling as he got up. The team saying it was a back injury and that Tagovailoa passed the concussion protocols, so he was set back in a few snaps later. An investigation finding while concussion protocols as written at the time were followed, the outcome is not what was intended when the protocols were drafted. The league and players association now agreeing if a player has an abnormality of balance, stability or motor coordination or dysfunctional speech, he will be prohibited from returning to the game. Although concussions are often associated with males and American football, they're occurring across all sports and genders. I received the puck, I looked up, and I got hit. I was going up for the rebound, and another one of my teammates was coming down from jumping and elbowed me in the head. A concussion is a metabolic event in the brain, and it changes your cognitive processing. I have one concussion on file. Do I believe I probably had more? Yeah. I couldn't see straight, and I fell over. <laughs> She kicked the ball and I immediately knew to turn around. If it hit me in the face, it probably would have broken my nose. But I turned around and it hit me like right on the, this the pony. This is a much more serious issue than we thought it was just a few years ago. We witnessed a rapid increase in uh, the participation of girls and women in exercise and sport. There's very little real solid information on the impact of concussions in, uh, in female athletes. The motion picture Concussion, based on the story told in the book League of Denial and the documentary of the same name, have helped us understand the long-term consequences of concussions. This is a game of awareness. It is a game of desire. That's why we have the three whistles. Let's go! Let's go! 
me? When I blow this whistle three times, you seek out a teammate, any teammate. You make collision. You be physical. You be violent. Bring it in here. Let's go. Bring it in. The only way you're going to get this player's hands off you, your grandfather's throwing you squeeze. You choke him until shit runs down his leg. You understand me? So again, in deference to our 90, 90 minute program, we will uh, we will keep this con concussions piece short, but we go into recognizing concussions, what's important about those uh, from uh, leading physicians. Um, we wanna shift gears right now to go to substance and uh, the substance issues that are absolutely critical are alcohol, THC, the vaping, and many of these new uh, issues. And one of them uh, it, that's critical regarding hazing and college uh, students returning uh, to school is the issue of alcohol uh, abuse. It's a real problem in colleges because you're drinking an obscene amount of alcohol and all the effects of that alcohol may not even be at play until you pass out. You can literally pass out and your blood alcohol concentration can continue to rise mm -hmm. if you're drinking hard alcohol like rum, bourbon, other hard liquors like And this that. is the first time a lot of, a lot of times the kids turn 21 in college, the first time they've ever had alcohol. So they, they may not know what their limits are. They have no clue are. how yeah. much they can consume mm -hmm. and, and what's too much. And the reason that people die is you have involuntary reflexes that are basically knocked out if your blood alcohol level gets too high. So think about how often do you drink a sip of water and you start coughing, oh, it went down the wrong pipe. Well, if your blood alcohol level goes beyond a certain point, that gag reflex no longer works. And so you can asphyxiate in your sleep and die. And, and I want to show everyone really quickly how blood alcohol concentrations affect your judgment. And why this often happens is because innocently enough, you may start off, have a drink, and you're starting to feel relaxed. Your intensification of mood. Then you're getting a little sedation. This is where you start to wonder, you know, driving may not be such a smart idea. Maybe after two or three drinks, you're starting to get impaired motor skills. 0 0.08 in many places is an illegal level of uh, blood alcohol concentration as far as DUIs. So things are be beginning to be impaired. Not really dangerous yet, but this is, I want everyone to focus on this. Significantly impaired judgment. Significantly impaired judgment. You know what that often means? I'm gonna keep on drinking. This liquor, it's not touching me. Often happens in college kids, then once they get confused, they may even be close to blacking out, but their friends are giving them more and more shots because their friends have impaired judgment. This is where things get, get kind of scary. Between 0.3 and 0.4, for most people who are naive to alcohol, you can start to lose consciousness. And then beyond 0.4, again, if you're alcohol naive, you can go unconscious, that's how you die. Now, what's crazy is I have seen full-blown alcoholics walking around the ER with levels of 0.4 plus because they're so used to having that much in their system. But a college kid, theoretically, you know, maybe that's the first time they've ever even had alcohol. And, and you know, what happened in the story, you know, he kind of passed out so that people around him figured, oh, he just He's needs to sleep it off. off. He needs to sleep exactly. it off. Let's put him in the bed and let him sleep it off. 
check yeah. on them in the morning. And that's often the wrong time thing to do because, you know, like you said, you, you lose your gag reflex, mm -hmm. your breathing's suppressed, and, and you can just wake up. And the people dead. around them probably have impaired mm -hmm. uh, thought <laughs> process as well. Like, are, are they thinking safe? Are they, are they being extra cautious? Probably not. And let me ask you this as parents. If your children ever called you up and said, you know what, my friend is not responding, we drank too much, I, I don't think you would ever be upset. Nope. You would nope. be there in a heartbeat. So you, if you I've cannot had, I've get... I've got that exact phone call, but it was from my daughter's friend. Mm -hmm. And, you know, wow. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm, 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 thank, I'm very thankful that my, my daughter's friends were around her to say, hey, but you need you Did need they call parent. 911? No, she was, you know, she was just on the verge of the passing out aspect by the time we got there she was out and you know as I was able to check her and, and kind of help and her ride just through it but new yeah experiences but with alcohol and as long as they know you call them there'll be no questions mm -hmm. asked as long as they're safe yes and I told and her even on that that, the, that day on the, when she goes to the graduation party I said you know if you need to call me no questions asked you call me and, she, and luckily the phone and call most came. colleges have a health care facility because if you cannot get your friend to respond to you they need to be in the emergency department where they can be closely watched, be given IV fluids if necessary, and more, more importantly, sometimes you need a breathing tube to get you through the night. Otherwise, you will not wake up the next morning. Colorado teenagers Will Brown and Jasmine Block are united by the all-too-common bond of addiction. My life is falling apart around me. I started using it just to like, feel like I could function. The pair, now sober, both say they got hooked on a high-potency form of marijuana extract. It's sold as edibles or oils, known as wax or shatter, that contain as much as 90% of the psychoactive THC, the chemical that gets you high. Compare that to the hippie high you may have grown up with. That pot had between about 2 to 5% THC. While millions do benefit from medical marijuana, in some cases, researchers have linked these new, more powerful concentrates to physical dependence, psychosis, and anxiety. When these patients come in and they have like repeated vomiting or acute psychosis, they tell us it's super hard to stop, which says to me it's addictive. How do you know that these are directly THC reactions. So we track it by urine drug screens and that tells us THCs. The rising cases like these are such a cause for concern that Colorado's governor just signed a new law to track and limit the purchase of high potency pot. Right now in that state, anyone 18 or older with an easy-to-get medical marijuana card can buy 40 grams of concentrates a day. When the law kicks in next year, that drops to 2 grams a day for anyone aged 18 to 20 and just 8 grams a day for anyone over 21. Digital tracking will monitor daily sales and those marijuana cards will be tougher to get. E-cigarettes vape pens, jewels. They're often marketed as safe alternatives to smoking, but their cool designs, fun flavors, and the fact that they're easy to hide means it's not only smokers who want them, it's kids. And for kids, they're definitely not safe. Teens should absolutely not use jewels, e-cigarettes, or any similar products. Here's why.
When kids use jewels or other e-cigarettes, they're getting a big dose of nicotine. This disrupts their brain development. It changes the connections between brain cells, causing problems with learning, mood, and impulse control. It makes depression and anxiety worse. And as any smoker can tell you, nicotine is highly addictive. That makes it very difficult to quit e-cigarettes. And vaping makes it much more likely that kids will smoke real cigarettes later. It's true that a few e-cigarette brands don't contain nicotine, but most of them do. And all of them contain other dangerous chemicals like these. Formaldehyde, which is found in glue and embalming fluid. Diacetyl, which causes lung disease. Benzene, that's a carcinogen linked to leukemia. Some tests have also found metal particles in the e-cigarette vapor. The devices themselves can also be unsafe. They can explode. The long-term effects of using e-cigarettes are unknown. And because there are no standards, we don't know the ingredients in these products. We don't want children to take unnecessary risks with their health. And begin a lifelong addiction to nicotine. Talk to your kids about e-cigarettes and how to say no to these harmful products. So we've covered uh, uh, a number of these substances. We'll, uh, before we finish substances, we'll go to the edibles and the THC uh, and hear from Dr. Boats. But David uh, Grinsfelder, you were a terrific uh, uh, speaker for us when we addressed a full deep dive, a 90-minute dive and longer on opioids, the counterfeit uh, pills and fentanyl. And we don't, we're not revisiting that in this session because we're building on that. Thank you for that and, and that we are not minimizing that, but today we're building on that by addressing the alcohol issues, uh, the vaping, uh, the THC and the edibles. Uh, your thoughts, uh, your perspective from you in the mid twenties. Yeah, yeah, I mean, my, my demographic, I think is the one of the ones that is the most susceptible or has already become uh, the biggest users of, of jewels and e-cigarettes and the plethora of other such devices that exist now. I mean, it's, it's expanded like you would believe. I think I see a new one every day that I have to ask someone what it's called because I don't know what their, their title is anymore. But um, it seems to me like there's a there's a battle for for the kind of the understanding of what these things do and what they're like because it's seen as cool right now and i think that's driving a lot of the use of it and so there has to be a change in the narrative and how people my age are talking about it i don't think it's gonna nothing's going to change unless people start to see it as the harm that it is rather than as a status symbol or as something that you know ingratiates you to other people your age or makes you seem like the cool person to hang out with. So that to me seems like the biggest issue right now is how do you change the narrative around it, around these devices? Right, Bill, your thoughts? Well, to be honest with you, it's a, it's a, uh, a really, really bad situation, sort of the perfect storm. <clears throat> when you think of in terms of most of the studies on uh, THC and so forth, we're, we're, we're very old and uh, we're dealing with very low uh, percentages of THC compared to what we have today. And so this whole issue of, of legalized marijuana, uh, medical marijuana, et cetera, is just in its infancy. We really don't know, we haven't, haven't worked through it all. So you, then you take that and you put it in concentrated forms and you introduce it into vaping and so forth, uh, along with nicotine, you, you know, it seems to me that it's, it's really a, a serious issue that we've got to get our arms around. 
but you know, obviously legislation is, is, is always going to be slow. It's going to be way behind problems. Um, our ability in, in, in educational centers are, you know, are limited. We have to get, get better at that to be able to identify things, uh, better education, particularly with our, with our parents and the, the youth. Um, and bottom line is, is that we know over history how the tobacco companies had reacted and how, how they had acted. We know uh, we know that they're getting behind. They held a, a good stake of ownership in this in the in the uh, in the new industry. So um, there's a lot of danger signals, and, and we just have to come together as a, a community of practice and put forth some some innovative ideas and, and just you know just try to help one person at a time. If we can do that, you know, perhaps we'll we'll have an impact. Well, fantastic. Uh, um, thank you, Bill. Uh, Randy, your thoughts, and we'll we'll cover a couple of issues regarding the edibles, and we'll go directly to drowning, which is just a major problem right now after COVID. Go ahead, uh, Randy. Any thoughts that you want to add to it? You're dealing with the college situation uh, right now. Yeah, just to really uh, piggyback on what Chief Adcock said, you know, that it's uh, there's there's a definite need for more research in terms of what the effects are, in especially the long-term effects. And we really look at the immediate intoxication effects of, of you know, concentrated THC and, and nicotine, um, you know, through vaping and, and with children. But, you know, the, the continuing that through, you know, lifelong impacts, I think is really important. And of course, that's going to take a long time because, we're going to have to track, you know, how these, this, especially the vaping issue is affecting young people into their adulthood. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of the legislation Chief Adcox talked about, you know, it's really proud that California is, um, we, the governor just signed into law the, the, the um, you know, anti-flavored tobacco initiative that was passed by the voters um, of California this last election, really overwhelmingly. So, you know, there is definitely, I think, the public um, perception of, you know, the harmless vaping. I mean, I remember the commercials that were coming out in the early 90s or mid 90s of when vaping sort of became a thing. Oh, it's just water. And, you know, it's it was it was really a, a concentrated effort to really, you know, portray it as just this harmless, you know, alternative to smoking. But we're finding out that that's not the case. So continuing, you know, hopefully that trend of of uh, you know legislation continues across the country, and you know we can really start holding the tobacco companies accountable for what they're doing. So Perry, react to what you've just seen regarding risk taking and adolescence in the teenage brain. Well, I thought that video was really fascinating in that there's actually physiological differences in the teenage brain and how it makes decision and approaches risk. From my experience, I mean, I'm only 24, so take it with a grain of salt, but. Um, as a teenager, it's the first, a lot, you'll encounter a lot of firsts. And in those firsts, you have the ability to make decisions, but you can't make those decisions with context because you don't have context. And so for my experience growing up, I always felt that, you know, as a teenager, you might not have context on a situation, so you'll make a particular decision. But that's really fascinating to know that there's actual, in addition to that, physiological differences that can make you even more prone to take risks. Couple that with uh, substances, alcohol, uh, THC, and other substances, and peer group pressure, you've got a real uh, lethal combination. Absolutely. 
But what we want to do is is just address this uh, this issue that is really surprising to everyone, and that is that drowning is such a major cause of death. Uh, we uh, we're seeing a, a, a real shift. It is now the leading cause of death in one year to four years of age, five to 14. Uh, Fifteen percent of the deaths are drowning. And those in the 15 to 24 age group, alcohol is uh, very, very, and THC and substances are very, very frequently, um, frequently cited as uh, one of the issues that are at play. Um, we had the opportunity of, uh, 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 of interviewing, uh, Charlie Denham interviewed uh, Nicole uh, Hughes. Uh, regarding the, this latest uh, information, and we'll just show, uh, show a short segment of uh, that interview, which you can watch in a longer version on uh, uh, our website and the extended version. We recently had the opportunity to update our message regarding drowning with Nicole Hughes. She has played a major role in our water safety work through her family's story of tragedy and by inspiring us to do better. Many are surprised to hear that drowning remains to be one of the major risks to our families. Even an Olympic gold medal skier accustomed to understanding risk, Bodie Miller, and his wife Morgan lost their 19-month-old daughter, Emmeline, when she drowned in a neighbor's pool. On June 10th, the very same day, a year later, Nicole Hughes lost her three-year-old son, Levi, when he slipped out of the room and drowned in less than a minute and could not be recovered by a group of doctors who were experts in resuscitation who are right there in the home. This led she and her husband, who's a physician, to team up with parents in the American College of Pediatrics to drive awareness of the poorly understood epidemic of drowning and what can be done to prevent it. I'm Nicole Hughes, Levi's mom. And while on a family vacation, his childhood was snatched away when I turned to close a bag of chips. He was sitting on the couch surrounded by friends and I split a brownie with him and then Somehow he slipped out the back door unnoticed down a flight of stairs and fell into the pool. When I jumped in to grab my son, the other half of the brownie was still in my mouth. I never thought my child would drown, but I was wrong. Drowning is the single leading cause of death for children ages one to four. It is silent and fast, and it can happen even when you aren't swimming. Drowning is preventable, please. Talk with your pediatrician about how you can keep your child safe. We had the opportunity of talking to Nicole Hughes late in the COVID crisis period in 2022. We are so appreciative of her commitment to help other families. Is drowning still a problem? And is it worse now after the COVID crisis? Yes. So drowning has, you know, since, um, the data has really started to be collected. I mean, decades ago, it's remained um, the the rates and the trends with drowning. They have declined some since like the early 1980s when the first drowning um, data started being compiled. But for the most part, the trends are still the same that they have been for 40 years. Um, and so, Yes, it is absolutely still a problem. And unfortunately, they're rising after the COVID pandemic. The, 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 the trends have always been and remain um, toddlers being the most at risk, teenagers um, 15 to 19 being the second most at risk, and actually um, the elderly 
80 to 85 being the third most at risk, it, which is not really information that most people think, but um, especially in that one to four-year-old range, the, the COVID death, the deaths during the pandemic have risen for multiple reasons because the, the age group by far, I mean, it cannot be emphasized enough, most likely to drown is the one to four-year-old age range. And typically it's when they don't know how to swim or self-rescue and they somehow reach water unsupervised, like they aren't swimming. They are playing in the living room and they somehow get out the, the back door and the gate has been left open and they somehow reach the pool. Like that's, that's almost every time when they drown. And so because of so many people working from home um, and daycares being closed and their children being home with them, um, you know, if a parent is on in the kitchen working and their child is 10 feet away from them playing in the living room, they think they're safe. But if the maintenance worker has left the gate propped open to the pool and they somehow slip out. Um, so that, that has been one of the factors. Um, the other factor has been um, the lack of swimming lessons because so many people stopped doing swimming lessons during the pandemic um, that you're, that there's not only are there, you know, so many more unskilled children because they weren't able to have access. Now you've got more kids competing for the same number of lessons. So for those of you that watch the extended version, you can hear, you'll, you'll hear uh, more from, uh, from Nicole, especially with the second drownings of parents or uh, siblings that try to save another uh, another child and uh, drown uh, uh, that way, and which is really really a, a, a difficult thing uh, to um, uh, to see. Um, I'm going to go back to our panel so we can wrap up, and I'm going to put up the checklist for families, and and we'll kind of wrap up with that. What I'd like to do is is uh, is uh, go uh, back to to David. Um, so you're you you have uh, brothers uh, uh, you, that are younger. You have scout, brothers that are scouts that uh, have been trained and that kind of thing. We really believe that there's an enormous opportunity for families to go back to uh, look at their house, look at their pool, look at the fence. Uh, look at the neighbors and and really kind of spread the word because it's just shocking to see that we have not solved the drowning problem, uh, which is just kind of crazy. Um, the other thing, uh, Randy, is that we're seeing drowning being uh, associated with alcohol use in the in the college age. And now with THC that has a longer half-life in the body, we're seeing people that are unaccustomed to taking edibles who will take them at the same time that people are drinking, and then that, that substance has a greater impact on them later when they might decide that they're going to go for a swim or, or you know, do whatever else. So David, you first, and then uh, you, Randy, and then we'll wrap up with, uh, with just a couple of the highlights on uh, the, the real tragedy of suicides, which has really exploded over the last four years, especially in this age group. Sure. I mean, we, we talk about the, the two parameters for something like this, right? For any crisis, right? It's, it's how present, how immediate is the crisis and how, how visible is it in front of people's eyes, right? And, and with something like this, where you have, you know, young children who are, are dying from very preventable causes, I think it's really at the forefront of people's minds. And, and I'm, I'm lucky that I, I haven't experienced it in my family, but I have a close friend who lost a young sibling to the same thing, to an, an unintentional drowning. So I, it just seems like it's, it's one of those things that could be easily prevented. There are strategies in place that can make it work, but God, I hope we can, 
I hope we can actually have actionable movement on it soon because it seems like it's a persistent problem. Randy, anything you'd like to add on this uh, this drowning issue, and then we'll wrap up on suicide. Yeah, you know, just really pushing the message of of you know the parental um, you know involvement in 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 teaching our our kids these you know not just swimming, but, you know, survival in the world in general. I mean, you know, as you know, I'm a scout, Chuck, I'm a, I'm a scout leader and my son was uh, just got his Eagle Scout um, from his troop, but water safety is, is a really big part of, of Boy Scouting and, and, you know, getting, making sure that anytime anybody goes to camp that they pass water safety tests. So, you know, these, these young kids have to learn how to swim and, you know, COVID obviously put a really big dent on that, but we really have to make the extra effort to come up. It's never too late to learn how to swim. And, it, it, you know, it's the type of thing, it's, it's a skill that will, will save your life someday. So we just have to keep pushing that message. Well, great. So uh, uh, on the on the screen, we, we have uh, uh, the student and family checklist. And... Um, this is a work in progress, but we've realized that there's an enormous opportunity not only to save the lives of these young people who have forming brains that we now know are really not mature until the mid-20s uh, by reducing the potential risk for motor vehicle accidents and mechanized toy accidents, alcohol, drugs, uh, THC, embedded fentanyl. We covered that very extensively. We don't mean to cover it lightly. Uh, drowning, but also suicide. And we've seen one of the reasons we opened with the social media impact is that it is a main felt to be a main contributor to suicide and the rapid growth of suicide in in women in young adolescent women uh, and that this is a, a, a critical issue so as we wrap up um, we're going to be making recommendations and continuing to build out the strategy to develop family safety plans, really address, uh, and we recommend that families discuss motor vehicle accidents and the fact that distractions, substances, helmets for e-bikes and skateboards be uh, attended to, that the kids really be careful about alcohol poisoning, fentanyl poisoning, especially with the counterfeit pills, uh, edibles, etc. Uh, but the drowning, which is just really shocking, uh, in our extended version, we'll show uh, some just great examples of choking. Even in my family, my, my son, uh, I had to do the Heimlich maneuver on him about two months ago. Uh, he would have passed away had I not uh, been right there for him. So this is something very, very common. And that the families really need to learn CPR, AED use, how to, uh, how to practice the skill of the Heimlich maneuver, knowing what the rescue position is, stop the bleed training, and then this issue of concussion which we've added to. So these are all critical issues. And we want to thank Nanette Houseman, who shared the story of her, her son, Kobe, uh, uh, Corey, and that uh, uh, the bill that she's putting forward and the fact that she's really helped us understand uh, this critical issue of uh, family members over 18 having a medical power of attorney, having your smartphone uh, be uh, put the setting on the smartphone so that you can uh, notify your in case of emergency contacts when you dial 911 automatically, knowing where your level one, uh, uh, your level one trauma centers are and your best centers are, especially for 
traumas and when you're going on trips. And then also we've added the medical record access for those that, that have any medical conditions, allergies to drugs, prior surgery, chronic conditions, acute conditions, these are all critical. So we just want to thank all of you uh, I'll give you both uh, uh, last words. Uh, Chief Adcox uh, was pulled away. So, uh, Randy, why don't uh, uh, or go ahead, Randy. We'll give you the last word, and we'll wrap up for our 90-minute session. Well, it's all great topics, as always, Chuck. Thanks for, uh, for having us on the panel. And, you know, just to, uh, you know, it, it, this is all about education and, and you know, having a plan as, as a family and making sure that, you know, you think about all these different things, like, accidental drowning like exposure to drugs or or tobacco or alcohol the driving all you know all those things just continually having the conversations with our our children and and you know reminding them of to be safe you know it's it seems like such a simple thing that, that we'd all think about all the time but a lot of time we don't the distracted driving you know video that we saw is is a perfect reminder of that but you know, just continue to to talk and 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 help our children get through, you know, these these dangerous times and and into a, a safer environment. Well, thank you for all you do at UCI and uh, and what you've done nationally. And so, Perry, as somebody who really uh, is interested in medicine and biology, who's an engineer, you really are kind of a biomedical engineer. I come from a family of a uh, of a neuroanesthesiologist. This area of the brain is so critical. What's your reaction to the evolving science of concussions? We don't know all the answers yet. I think it's really it's really important research, but it's just really a lot of people just aren't aware. So many people think, like they said in the video, and oh, unless they pass out, they're fine. It's kind of the hidden injuries of concussions that make them so dangerous. And it's, especially because we don't know all the information, I think it's really, really important that everyone, especially if you're in active sports, you're playing soccer, football, baseball, that you're really just aware and kind of always think twice after you get hit. Even if it's just kind of a light hit, maybe a light fall, um, just really think twice and make sure to follow procedure, talk to a trainer, talk to a coach. And uh, make sure that you're not playing after after you get hit. And uh, uh, so we'll close today. Thank you for being part of our learning laboratory. We're building building out these building blocks. Uh, there'll be more resources on the website. Uh, this is you're truly uh, witnessing having the sausage being made. We're covering a lot of topics and trying to put ten pounds in a one pound bag. But uh, 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 as the curriculum gets built out, we'll be making it available to everyone for free on our website. So thank you all. God bless you and have a wonderful holiday. And we'll see you in January.